Brian McClanahan Show, episode 287. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. Find all those social media accounts at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook and an audiobook of the same title, Forgotten Founders, read by yours truly. You can also support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. It's a great, great website. I've got a lot of classes for purchase. And, of course, you support the show when you do that because I give you this free of charge. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Also, click on that shop tab while you're at brianmcclanahan.com. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff, shirts, stickers, all kinds of cool. I mean, there's great stuff out there for that. Think locally, act locally. I've got a, a design for that. Uh, go to learntruehistory.com, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Another great way to support the show. You get a great website. Uh, over 20 classes taught by uh, Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, yours truly, Deborah Berzer now, Jeff Herbner, a lot of great people out there teaching at Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. It's, so learntruehistory.com is my affiliate. Support the show that way. A lot of great ways to support the show. And of course, share it around on social media. Rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to anchor.fm. You can leave me a message. Maybe you'll get on the show that way. You can support the show through Anchor.fm as well in the Brian McClanahan Show. Lots of great ways to get in touch with me and support the show. So, uh, And if you have any ideas for a show, I always say this. If you have any ideas, send me an email. I may not respond to it, but I do read them. So if you want to uh, pitch something to me and you think, hey, that'd be a great show. That's something I'd like to hear. Of course, you are the listener, so I want you to tell me what you want to hear. But let's talk about the coronavirus which has now reached uh, over 4,000 cases across the world, uh, over 100 deaths now. So you're looking at a, at a mortality rate, at least reported, of, um, of a, if there was 100 deaths and over 4,000 cases, uh, you're talking less than about 2.5%. About 2% of the people that are getting infected with this virus are dying. And I think this is going to be a Think Locally, Act Locally episode as well. And I'm going to talk about this in a broader perspective uh, in the world. And not just modern, the modern age, but also throughout history. So we've got this very nasty cold virus, which essentially is what it is. I mean, it's a, it's a cold virus that's now uh, lethal. And uh, it's causing pneumonia because of respiratory infection. So we have uh, a, a pretty pretty hard thing for people to get through. And in China in particular, this is becoming a real problem, particularly in the city uh, of Wuhan. So we've got uh, over 2,000 reported cases there. And of course, if you believe the news reports coming out, it's actually worse than that. I mean, there's medical professionals saying there's well over 100,000 people already infected. Um, so, And the idea is that this virus is going to keep growing until probably uh, May, April, or May. So we've got another two months of this, two to three months 
of this particular virus, and uh, it's, it's bad. So the fear is, of course, a global pandemic. Why? Why is that a fear here in 2020, that we're going to have a global pandemic on a virus like the coronavirus? It's a global pandemic because we've globalized everything in the world. And you look back at some major pandemics. You look back, for example, at the Black Plague that wiped out parts of Europe in the late Middle Ages, or as people say, late antiquity. Uh, they can't say Middle Ages anymore. That's can't do that. Or the Renaissance. Can't call it the Renaissance either. It's the early modern era. This Renaissance would imply that uh, you know there's uh, this. Uh, rebirth of these classics, but no, no, it's just the early modern era. That's all the same now. And that's fine. I mean, historians go and quibble with this stuff all the time. But the fact is, we had this very horrible plague, this bacterial infection that wiped out millions of people in the uh, late Middle Ages. And then we also had, of course, the Spanish flu. About 100 years ago, we had a very nasty flu that wiped out Millions of people around the world. Uh, personally, my my own my own family. Uh, my my uh, grandfather was born at the. He was already born at that time when the Spanish flu came through, 1918, 1919, about a hundred years ago. Uh, had to live in a root cellar because the entire town in in Nebraska where he was born and living at the time, he was about six years old. Um, it uh, my my uh, great grandmother was a nurse. She went into town nursing people in this horrible uh, viral outbreak, and uh, but to try to protect them, they they got underground, and lived in a root cellar. Um, and uh, I mean that's I mean it's just things that you think, wow. I mean that's it's pretty dramatic, pretty drastic. But I mean these people they didn't know. I mean they were just trying to protect themselves from this nasty virus and uh, be out of the air essentially. Um, but we've got this nasty global pandemic or potentially a global pandemic. And we have this, I mean, this isn't the first time. We had SARS, which came out of China. We've had Ebola. We've had an Ebola scare, which Ebola has a much higher mortality rate than this this uh, coronavirus does. Um, I mean, Ebola and Marburg and some of these, those viruses aren't anything to play around with. I mean, they are, they're, they're lethal uh, at close to 50%. So, I mean, those things, you get that, you're pretty much done for. The people have recovered from the uh, coronavirus um, at about the same rate as people have, have died. I mean, so we'll see more recovery rates. I, I highly doubt we're going to see mortality rates get to the point where it's just outstripping, far outstripping the recovery rates. Uh, but certainly there's a lot of fear about this. And it all comes from the fact that we had this uh, seafood market that was selling stuff that eh, most people, I mean, you just really shouldn't eat it, right? I mean, this is, you really shouldn't eat the stuff that some people eat. But if you look back through history, this gets back, I'm going to talk about historical examples of this and not just viruses, but this is a, this is a reason to think locally, act locally. I mean, all the things I'm going to talk about here are caused by globalism. Think globally, act locally. No, no. It's think locally, act locally. The global part is the problem. Um, 
certainly what you do today can affect global populations. I mean, the fact that this this virus outbreak in China could affect a global population. It has. I mean, it's already we've already had people in have five cases of this thing in the United States, all from people who traveled China. We've got cases in Europe. We've got cases in other parts of Asia. So the fact that this is happening, one of the areas where I don't think I've seen a case reported yet is Africa. Why? Because in those particular areas, you've got a much more closed off society. Now you could say, well, that's the exact reason why you don't want to be thinking locally acting. Look at Africa. I mean, these places are, they're, they don't have uh, a vibrant economy and they're, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, they, they're, they're in real trouble in some of these areas. On the other hand, uh, you can still have a very vibrant economy with a local economy, um, and I mean, but you just don't have the global input. I mean, the United States uh, in its global outreach is, uh, I mean, this is the, the backlash against the globalists is tremendous because of things like this. But of course, this has been the case for, for, the, for the West, for Europe, for nearly 600 years. We've been dealing with this particular situation of globalization and the impact of globalization on Europe and then by an extension the United States because the United States was initially part of this global extension and now the United States became a global power following World War II. So we have an, a, a reach beyond just the United States. But is that healthy, ultimately? Is that healthy for society to have such a, for humans, to have such a large reach? And I go back, and I've talked about this before, um, when William the Conqueror became king of, of England in the 11th century. Just before he died, he commissioned what's called the Doomsday Book. The Doomsday Book was essentially a tax assessment. And the idea was to figure out who was out there and how much they could assess these people in taxes. And so you had this book of a, a census, a tax assessment. And I find the book fascinating because it actually shows you how large these communities were in the Middle Ages. Here we are in the high Middle Ages, now the 11th century. In the Middle Ages, and you have large towns with, say, 2,000 people in them. That was a large town, 2,000 people. Now, imagine, of course, because of sanitation, diet. I mean, these people ate horrible stuff, and they, the health care was non-existent. I mean, we didn't have antibiotics, any of that stuff. So people died from simple infections. But imagine a situation where, you know, you would have had, say, a nasty virus in the 11th century, and there was plague and other things then, but it did not spread like it did just 300 years later. Why? Because there wasn't the extensive trade networks and movements of people that you had in the 1300s, into the 1400s. You just didn't have it. It did not exist. So the reason we had the bubonic plague spread the way it did, at least, I mean, the theory is it came from Asia, spread into Italy, and then moved on from there. It was airborne. I mean, now historians are generally conflicted about whether it was airborne or not. Was it just fleas on rats? I think generally now they've come to the conclusion as they've studied more, they found other areas where the plague was just, just completely destroying areas that uh, in human populations that it was airborne. It had to be to spread that rapidly as people coughed and they got the plague, the bacterial infection, and it killed them. 
This thing was spread because of international trade. Came from Asia into Europe. So you had these very much local agrarian economies before that point, now impacted by trade, and people die. Now you can say, well, yeah, but they're making money because of this, and people are becoming more prosperous and wealthy because of trade. For the average peasant in, uh, in Europe, that wasn't the case. In fact, they're just killed by international trade. And I think for most people, now, in the United States, so much of our products, our food, our clothing, our consumable goods, our electronics, I mean, so many things that we have come from overseas. We don't really manufacture much at all in the United States anymore. As I said, even our food, you go to a, a, a large big box retailer like, say, Sam's Club, and you go and you want to buy fish, right? You want to buy some frozen fish. Look where it all comes from. You go to your, to your local grocery store and your seafood market there. A lot of it comes from Asia. It comes from places like China. And you have to be concerned about uh, Chinese seafood and contamination and other things. I mean, so you have this. So we don't have a local market economy anymore, even for our food, which creates the possibility of a global pandemic for all kinds of reasons. It's the mere transportation of the food, where it comes from, what it's, what, how it's prepared, how it's, how these, for example, shrimp, how these shrimp are fed and what they're fed. You don't know. You don't know any of that stuff. You don't know any of it. One of the best arguments for sustainable local farms is that you might know the farmer. You might, you could tour that farm. There's a, there's a farm. Uh, there are some areas near there where I live that you have several of these organic farmers. And they allow you to come on to our farm. Come look at what we're doing. Look at how we're feeding our animals. Look at how we're preparing our, our crops. We don't use any herbicides, pesticides. Look at the stuff you get. Now, you're going to pay more for this stuff. But, I mean, when you get a, uh, a head of lettuce and you're going to clean it and it's got spiders in it, you know they're not using any insecticides on that. I mean, you got to get the spiders out of it to go eat it. You got to really clean the stuff to get the insects off of it. You know you're getting really clean, quote unquote, produce. You're just getting dirt and insects. You're not getting a tremendous amount of pesticides you're consuming into your body. You don't know where these things come from. We were talking, went to the into a restaurant uh, the other day, and there was a um, that was a Mexican restaurant, and the the waitress there was talking about her her home in Mexico and how she's allergic to milk in the United States, but she can go back to Mexico and she can have the milk there that's in her local community and it doesn't bother her. Now, of course, it's not it's not pasteurized. They have to go back and boil it to drink it. But it's fresh out of the cow. They go boil it and then they, they drink it. And she can drink that. She has no problems with it. But here in America, she has trouble drinking the milk that comes from mass dairy farms. Now, I don't consume really any dairy products. It's one thing that you could avoid. But um, the fact is, here she's saying it's because of the milk. I mean, it's because you don't know where your products come from, your food. All this has to do with globalization. If people were thinking locally and acting locally, this would not be a problem. So we have this global economy, this global markets, all these things. It's creating the possibility of a global pandemic with coronavirus. It, and some of this could be stopped with a much more locally based mentality closing off a city of and put the, the coronavirus in perspective too 
the city of Wuhan, where it where it originated, is 11 million people. There's been about 2,000 cases. Now, there's people thinking this could you could have 100,000 cases in that city. Uh, it's a lot of people there. But if they keep it closed off, maybe you don't see it growing in other areas. It is, it is. I mean, you've seen it in other parts of China as people have spread out from Wuhan. But uh, certainly the the idea is to, to try to corral it in that city. And we don't know if the Chinese are being completely honest about numbers or not. But we do know that uh, it, it is a, a nasty virus. You're trying to contain it's going to be difficult in a global economy with travel and other things. So it's one of the reasons why we should be thinking locally and acting locally. But I'm going to give you some historical perspective on this on the backside of this particular episode. So I'll see you in a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to the present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, You've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about the coronavirus and globalization and thinking locally and acting locally. And I'm just going to give you some perspective. I mentioned it before, the Columbian Exchange. You go back and you study Western civilization. You get to the point where Columbus arrives in the New World in 1492 and all the things he brings back to Europe. The impact that Christopher Columbus had on the future of the world it's tremendous. And this is not the first time that Europeans had brought things back from other places. You go back and you study the Roman Empire. One of the benefits of the Roman Empire was all the products you could have in the Roman Empire from Africa, Asia, the Middle East. I mean, they were they had extensive trade networks throughout the world. I mean, you go back and you look at the Middle East and the, and the Roman outposts in the middle of the desert because these were trade networks. And, they, of course, they were involved in the China trade. Um, and so they were getting products and things from the East, from Africa, uh, over time. There's little doubt that there was this draw to a much larger economy. And, of course, 
the Persian Empire before that, and the Roman uh, access to the Persian Empire, the Greeks access to the Persian Empire. I mean, this was something you had these large empires, and the reason that they were successful and they had a lot of money is because you you were able to use the resources to your advantage. So there is certainly an argument to be made for these kind of things. But when you start uh, uh, farming out, no pun intended, all of your products, and you start having to have these products come from all over the world, and you don't produce anything yourself, now you're entirely based on service, you do start running into problems uh, where you have perhaps access to some of these things, but not just that, you can run into a situation where global problems can create local problems. So when you look at the Colombian exchange, and this is the, the process by which things are brought from one area to another, invasive species, invasive plants, diseases, this is really is an issue that we don't often think about, but I'm going to give you some examples of these things in your everyday life that you wouldn't realize are a byproduct of the Columbian Exchange. Now, viruses and bacterial infections and these things are something that are on front and center because these things can kill you. So when you have something like the coronavirus, I mean, you're thinking, my gosh, I mean, I hope that thing doesn't get over here, or Ebola, or some of these nasty things that are out there that can just stay in those areas, right? I mean, I... When even the flu, if you have the flu, keep it to yourself. You know what I mean? Stay home, keep it to yourself. Don't try to infect other people. Uh, but, you know, when you look at some of these horrible things that come out of uh, other places. But Ebola is an interesting case. When the Ebola virus, the, the, the pandemic, now they have a vaccine for this that they think works. Uh, but, of course, every now and then you get, you get another scare of Ebola. And that's because people are eating things they shouldn't be eating, like bush meat. Uh, I mean... We shouldn't consume those things. Uh, but not just that. When you look at the impact that had just a couple of years ago on the chocolate market, a lot of people don't realize, but most of our chocolate is imported. Uh, the beans for the chocolate are imported from West Africa. So because these chocolate plantations in West Africa essentially still use slave labor. I mean, we, the self-righteous Americans high and mighty about, well, I mean, we're going to be a woke society and we're not going to support anything that... We're gonna be. We're gonna just criticize what we're gonna criticize slavery while I'm downing a Hershey bar, and the Hershey bar comes from West. The chocolate comes from West Africa. The coca bean does that comes from West Africa. That's produced by predominantly slave labor, or the sugar that goes into that particular Hershey bar that comes out of major sugar plantations in the Caribbean, uh, which is produced with predominantly uh, almost slave labor. I mean, these people get paid, but I mean, it's not a payment really. You're, you're basically a slave on these sugar plantations. But we're just gonna we're gonna talk about how evil slavery was in America, and we're gonna make sure we're woke and we're all in the right opinion about these things. But yet you still have these uh, these uh, situations all over the world. Uh, it just shows how hypocritical and stupid Americans really are. But the fact is, uh, when you have these kind of of disease pandemics, it's uh, it's it's a problem because of our global global situation, and this has always been the case. So give you a couple of examples about some things where the Colombian exchange, where people thinking globally creates problems for people on the local. If you live in the South, there's a particular pest that everyone hates. There's not one person out there that likes this pest. Uh, they are a nuisance, and um, it is something that you deal with in the South on a regular basis. If you live in the South, you probably know what I'm already talking about. 
It's not cockroaches, if you think it's that. I mean, those have been around forever. But it's fire ants. Now, where do fire ants come from? Fire ants come from South America. These were not... When you go back and you look at American history and you study, say, the South again, I mean, you don't have fire ants uh, above the Mason-Dixon line, really. Uh, they can't survive in, when it gets too cold. But when you look at fire ants... Now, there's another ant species that can, which is... I mean, hopefully it never gets outside of Texas... Uh, because it would, I mean, it just ruins things. Uh, but when you look at fire ant species, and it's another one that's an invasive species from overseas, from from South America. But when you look at fire ant species, they didn't have them in the 1860s. They weren't they weren't in the United States until the 1950s. No fire ants before the 1950s in the United States. They came in through a container ship into Texas, and there was some talk about containing them in Texas. They didn't do it, and so these things now spread everywhere. And of course. Uh, you go anywhere in the southeast uh, and you look across a field and you see these mounds, these brown little mounds all over the field. Those are your fire ants. And fire ants are wasps without wings. These things are nasty and there's nothing that I take greater joy in killing than fire ants. When If, you've, if, you've, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not from the south, you've never seen a fire ant. They're little, little ants, little red ants, and they bite and they hurt. And they will make you itch like like you just think you're going to have to saw off if you get bit on the hand. Like you're going to have to saw off your hand because it itches so badly. Uh, and it's fire ant because it burns when they bite. And it feels like something is burning your skin. Um, it's a it, They are nasty. Um, and it is a South American ant that comes in and causes all kinds of problems. Now fire ants also kill termites. Um, they eat the larvae of the termites. But you don't want these things in your yard. But this is an invasive species. This is people not thinking locally. They're thinking globally. They want this trade with South America. They want these things. And so we're going to get fire ants. The other ant species that's in Texas that would be a major problem if it spread beyond Texas. And I think that they are spreading. I just don't know how far. I haven't looked at this entomology and the spread of this. I, this is something that was, there was a question asked on the Q&A for uh, Liberty Classroom the other day. What am I interested in outside of just studying uh, American history, or I'm interested in uh, these kind of things, invasive species. I, I like reading about stuff like that and weather. Uh, but you have um, certainly uh, the one of the invasive species that I just hope never gets anywhere outside of, of Texas, and maybe I wish they could eradicate it there. But the raspberry crazy ants, raspberry crazy ants are another one, an invasive species from South America, and this species of ant will go inside in the winter. They will actually. Uh, you know, nest in your house, and then when it gets warm, they'll go outside of your house again. So they come in, and what they do, which is so horrible, they you everyone's seen an ant trail, right? The ants just follow the trail. They get their little trail, and they start. The raspberry crazy ants create trails that are you know three feet wide with millions of ants, and they get in your electronics and they short everything out. They short out power uh, power substations. I mean, these things are awful. They're drawn. They release a pheromone when they get fried, and then more ants come. I mean, it's 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 crazy. That's why they're called raspberry crazy ants. They act crazy, um, and so you can keep them out, but it's hard to do. You got to spray a lot of chemicals to keep them out of your house, um, and so there are places that people just walk around with ticks because these. So this is an invasive species. This is something caused by globalism. We're trading with South America. We got to have South American products. We got to get these things out of South America uh, into the United States. And not to say that I mean Americans haven't made. A lot of money trading products. I mean, you look at even the South, you know, cotton trade, it's international trade. Uh, 
But certainly uh, on those plantations, you tried to have these self-sustaining plantations and, and import as little as you had to because you wanted to ensure that you saved money and you kept products in-house. You wanted to know where your food came from. So you have insect species, bird species. Uh, if, you're, if you're interested in, in birds, uh, there is a species, there are several species of birds, but uh, the European starling, which is a real problem in some areas, will come in and, and destroy native species. Uh, so the starlings will do this, or the, the sparrow, also another one that will do these kind of things. And they're not, they're not native species to North America. Uh, you look at uh, what's going on with the wildlife trade and exotic pets. These are things that, again, people say, well, if you're a libertarian, you just accept all this stuff. Well, I think the local community could try to keep some of this stuff out. You don't want pythons in your community. Pythons are problematic. You look at Florida, what's going on with iguanas. The iguana population in South Florida is taking over. So they're actually allowing people to just kill iguanas now because they're so problematic. People have had bought all these iguanas, and these things breed like crazy. If you've ever had any kind of uh, reptile species around your house, I mean, you got problems when those things start hatching everywhere. We, where I currently live, uh, we have geckos, and these little geckos are everywhere outside, and so sometimes they get inside, and then you got geckos in your house. Uh, but it's because there's so many of them. Uh, but iguanas are not a native species of South Florida. Uh, there's an area of Florida where people brought in monkeys thinking this was a good idea. And these monkeys have taken over a part of, of Florida, an island there, and they're spreading out. Uh, and they are causing all kinds of problems. So you have, and this is something that people don't think about when they introduce these things to areas. This is an ecological disaster in a lot of ways. Uh, another one in the South that people, it's an invasive species and uh, was brought in as an ornamental plant, but it's kudzu. Right? It's an Asian plant. It's not even supposed to be here. But kudzu has taken over everything because there's really no predator for it here in America. So people have talked about bringing in Asian uh, animals to try to eat the kudzu. And <laughs> so, I mean, this is, you have, you, you have to create other problems. There's the lionfish, which have been dumped out into the waterways, which are now taking over part of our coastal waterways and destroying the natural, uh, natural uh, uh, reef system that we have and our waterways with the fish. So all of this stuff, all these invasive species are brought about because of global activities rather than just local activities. Uh, of course, there is a benefit, and we would think, well, I mean, the tomato, for example. I mean, Europeans had no contact with tomatoes, really. I mean, they, they grew them some, but until the New World, they didn't do much with tomatoes. Now, of course, tomatoes are a staple of, of everywhere in, in, your, in Western civilization. I mean, people love tomatoes. It's a nightshade or peppers, uh, which are a native species to uh, the Americas. So, I mean, uh, peppers are something that people like but in Europe now, but, you know, you have peppers. But um, so this is, this is where you have these particular types of crops, animals, plants, uh, diseases that are highly problematic for local populations and this local problem is created by a global mindset. So what can you do? I mentioned this in the first half of this. What can you do? Well, you shop sustainable local farms. You go out and you buy your produce from your local farmers. You support those people. You can go visit their farms, even if they're not organic. But you can still go visit their farms. And you, these are people that produce stuff right here. It doesn't have to travel on a truck 
200 miles to your location or 1,000 miles to your location or from overseas to your location. You buy local fish. I mean, there's one thing when we go and we vacation at the Gulf of Mexico, we love to go buy local fish coming right off. I mean, you can see the boats coming in and it's coming right there. You're buying it right. It doesn't, doesn't travel very far. You get that fish and it's good, right? So we like to do that when we go down to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, these are things that you can do if you want to buy beef. Buy it from a local beef, uh, from a local ranch, right? You get it, and there are places where the ranch, the ranch will kill the beef right there. They'll slaughter it. They'll process it right there. You can go buy local beef, local chicken, local pork. And if you're if you're someone who eats a lot of meat, uh, you can buy these things locally, and that's going to help curtail some of this global activity that can be problematic for some of these invasive species, diseases, plants, insects. Uh, don't buy exotic pets. Um, and if you do, don't release them. Uh, but this is thinking locally, acting locally. I mean, you, you have to think about things and how those, how these po- plant animal populations are going to affect your local environment. It's not going to be good ultimately because, and I know this makes me sound like, you know, people say, well, you sound just like a leftist. No. I sound like someone who's interested in uh, preserving a local community. It's not just politically we need to do these things or education-wise, but there are certain things you can do to really help support your local community and the vibrance of your community outside of simply uh, you know, getting involved in your city council or local school board. Great ideas. But what you do in your own house and how you, how you get your food. What kind of plants you, you plant in your yard? I mean, things that are not invasive. You, you plant local plants. Um, you try to have a natural environment there that's local. Don't bring in stuff from, ah, oh, this plant looks great in Asia. Let me bring it here. It's a bad idea. This animal looks it would do great, does great in Asia, or, or it does great in Africa, or it does great in South America. Let's bring it here. No. Keep it in those places. You're better off for it. Uh, we don't need any more because, again, when you do these things, you create the problems, you create potential problems. Not, I mean, we're looking at, you know, virus now or a bacterial infection and some of these things that are could be really problematic for a, for a general population. But also, we don't think about the environmental impact of plants and animals and insects and what those things do on a regular basis when we bring these things in out from other places. So if we want to have more sustainable and less of these problems... You do more things locally. So think locally, act locally. It's not just politics. It's not just education. It's what you can do. It's the last episode I talked about, how you can help your community and who the people are that it can, it can impact. I mean, everyday people, wonderful things, and also what you can do for your community. This whole week is think locally, act locally in a couple of different a couple of different areas. What you can really do to help yourself and your community on the local and how that can make your life a much more vibrant life. All right. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClaney.